You know, some people say, well, the virgin birth was about protecting the, the, the sinlessness of Christ. Listen, God had to protect the sinlessness of Christ as much from Mary as he did from Joseph. That's why the Holy Spirit ensured that he would be the Holy One. Welcome to The Word Unleashed with Tom Pennington. Tom is pastor-teacher at Countryside Bible Church in Southlake, Texas. Hello, I'm Bill Wright, and today Tom begins a new four-part series in the New Testament Gospels titled, A Survey of the Life of Christ. The Christian faith that we believe centers around the person and work of Jesus of Nazareth. The Bible, specifically the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, record the details about Jesus' life, spanning from His miraculous conception to His monumental ascension. And yet there are all sorts of views about Jesus that exist in our world today, most of which are completely inaccurate. So it's absolutely crucial for us as Christians to know and understand what the Bible says about the life of our Lord. We have to base our view of Jesus Christ solely on God's perfect and reliable record of His life, the Scripture. Well, Tom, why must Christians go to Scripture first in order to form our understanding of the life of Christ? The purpose of the Bible is to make the one true God of heaven known. And that simply means that He's revealed Himself in the Scripture in order to reveal who He is as well as His eternal purposes. And as Paul tells us in the book of Ephesians, at the very center of God's plan of the ages, as he calls it, is Jesus Christ. And the New Testament, specifically the Gospels, record for us what God wants us to know about Jesus Christ, his earthly life. No other source can really tell us accurately about his life. And it's absolutely crucial that we as believers know what Scripture says about Jesus so that we might know Him, be saved through His life, death, and resurrection, and come, as Paul prayed in the Philippian letter, to know Him even better. Thanks, Tom. And friend, let's join our teacher now on The Word Unleashed. Matthew writes to Jewish believers and presents Jesus as Messiah and King. Mark, really an amanuensis of sorts for Peter, writes to the Romans as well as to other Gentiles and presents Jesus as servant. Luke, to Greeks and other Gentiles, presents Jesus as the perfect man, the perfect man who represents the humanity that God intended for humanity to be. And then John writes to the entire world and presents Jesus as the unique Son of God. Those are the perspectives, four different perspectives of the same gospel, and of course, our Lord Jesus Christ at the center of that gospel. Now, I want us to just get a brief summary timeline. I'll come back to this a little bit next time when we look at the ministry of Christ, but let me just give you the big picture. We know that our Lord was born somewhere between the years 5 and 6 B.C. I know that messes up your brain because uh, you think, wait a minute, I thought B.C. was before Christ. Well, remember, the calendar as we know it was created 500 years after Christ, and while he did a reasonably good job, he did miss a little. So, 
the reason we know the, this approximate window of time when Jesus was born is because of the death of Herod. We know that Herod the Great died in late March, early April of the year 4 B.C. We know that he was alive when Jesus was born because, remember, he is the one who caused the children to be killed in Bethlehem. And because of him, we know that Jesus was less than two years old at that time, remember, because he killed all the children two years of age and older. So we know, therefore, that Jesus was born somewhere in that 5 to 6 B.C. window. Now, when you do the math then, we understand things. uh, If I had time, I could take you through. There are a number of different ways to calculate the beginning of Jesus' ministry. One of them is the Gospels tell us that he was about 30 when he began his ministry. We can also calculate from the day of his death. We know that he died on Friday, and that Friday was a Passover Friday. There are only two possibilities in that period of history. One of them was 30 A.D., and the other is 33 A.D. It had to be one of those two dates. Well, once we know the timing of his death, we know he started his ministry at about 30. You can do the math from there. I certainly lean toward a 30 A.D. death of Christ and, uh, and resurrection. And so this is based on that chronology. We'll talk a little more about that when we get to his ministry. But that's an overview of, of his life and ministry. Born in the years 5 to 6 B.C., began his ministry in the year 26 A.D., and after a three-and-a-half-year ministry, he ends up dying and being raised from the dead in the year 30 A.D. Now, with that background, let's begin by looking at Matthew chapter 1. Turn with me to Matthew chapter 1. Matthew begins his gospel with the record of the genealogy of Jesus the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Now, both Matthew and Luke provide us with the genealogical records of Jesus. If you compare Matthew and Luke's genealogies, you find that there are significant differences. Obviously, Luke goes back to Adam, and Matthew only goes back to Abraham. And from David, excuse me, from Abraham to David, the two genealogies are practically identical. But the most difficult differences are the generations from David to Christ. Now, there are two obvious problems in the genealogies with that in mind. One is the names are greatly different, and two, the number of generations are different. Now, why is this? Well, there have been a number of of solutions that have been proposed, but I think the, the simplest and the most obvious is that from David and on, you're talking about two different genealogies. You say, why would there be two different genealogies? Well, let me explain to you the problem. The problem is a man named Jeconiah. Jeconiah is a problem for this reason. If you go back to 2 Samuel 7, God told David that the legal right to his throne was to pass through his son Solomon. In other words, the Messiah would come from Solomon. But one of Solomon's descendants was a man named Jeconiah. And because of Jeconiah's sin, 
God said that none of his physical descendants would prosper on the throne of David. That's in Jeremiah twenty-two thirty. So none of his physical offspring would prosper on the throne of David. Now think about the problem we have here. The Messiah is going to come through Solomon. The line runs through Jeconiah, but none of his physical offspring can prosper on the throne. So how does this work? Well, this is where the genealogies come in. Because from David to Christ, they are the genealogies of two different people. When you look at Matthew's genealogy in Matthew chapter 1, verses 1 to 17, you find that this is clearly the genealogy of Jesus, but it's through Joseph, his legal father. And therefore, it traces back through David's son, Solomon. Now, the problem with that is Joseph's line includes whom? Jeconiah, whom God said none of his physical descendants would sit on the throne. And so, the legal claim to the throne passed to Jesus through Joseph. But listen carefully. Because Jesus was not physically descended from Joseph, he escaped the curse on Jeconiah's seed. In fact, look at chapter 1, verse 16. Notice how it's worded. Jacob was the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary. Notice that expression, by whom Jesus was born, who is called the Messiah. Now, in English, the whom is unclear. Could refer back to Joseph, could refer back to Mary. But in the Greek text, whom is feminine singular. (coughs) Excuse me. So we could accurately translate verse 16 this way. Jacob was the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary. And it was by Mary that Jesus was born, who is called Messiah. Do you see the brilliance of God? One of David's descendants through Solomon would have the legal right to the throne, but Jeconiah and his physical offspring could never be that person. So how does God solve this? Well, that's where the second genealogy comes in, in Luke chapter 3. This is the genealogy of Jesus as well, but instead of through Joseph, it's through Mary, his physical mother. From David on, it's a different genealogy. It's through David's son, not Solomon, but through David's son, Nathan. And what that means is it excludes Jeconiah and the curse God had made on Jeconiah. And so the legal claim to the throne came through Joseph's side, but the physical claim to the throne passed to Jesus through Mary. They were both descendants of David. And because of the way God arranged it, because of the virgin birth, Jesus could be both the legal claimant on the throne through Solomon without the curse of Jeconiah, but the physical descendant of David through Mary and ultimately through David's son, Nathan. Really amazing, isn't it? How our God arranges history. This is one of the major reasons behind the virgin birth. You understand that, you know, some people say, well, the virgin birth was about protecting the, the, the sinlessness of Christ. Listen, God had to protect the sinlessness of Christ as much from Mary as he did from Joseph. That's why the Holy Spirit ensured that he would be the Holy One. The virgin birth, in part, was to protect 
the claim of Jesus on the throne and yet avoid the curse on Jeconiah. Now that brings us then to the birth of Jesus. Look at chapter 1, verse 18. Now the birth of Jesus Christ was as follows. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child by the Holy Spirit. And Joseph, her husband, being a righteous man and not wanting to disgrace her, planned to send her away secretly. Now, Scripture doesn't tell us how old Mary and Joseph were when they became engaged, but we do know this. Most men of that time were married before they were 20. And most Jewish girls of the first century were betrothed just after puberty at somewhere between 13 and 15 years of age. It's possible that Mary was in her late teens, but frankly, it's highly unlikely. Usually, families arranged for their children's marriages, and they arranged for those marriages at a relatively early age. Now, a first-century Jewish marriage consisted of two parts. There was, first of all, the betrothal period called the Kiddushin, It was much more serious than our engagement. Don't think engagement. It could only be ended by divorce. And yet the couple didn't live together, and they were to remain sexually pure. Any form of sexual sin was considered adultery during this this betrothal period. And in Old Testament times, according to Deuteronomy 22, the guilty party was to be stoned. The second part of the Jewish marriage was called the chuppah. The man went to the, the home of his wife with a great you know, parade of people and great fanfare, and he brought his wife from her parents' home back to his home to live. And this was accompanied by as many as seven days of feasting and, of course, the consummation of the marriage. Guys, you thought your daughter's wedding cost you a lot. Imagine paying for seven days of feasting. The word that Matthew uses here in his account tells us that what happened here was during that first period, the Kiddushin. And notice Matthew adds that it was before they came together. That's a Jewish euphemism for the fact that they had, had, not, they had not had sexual relations. And at some point during the Kiddushin, during that formal betrothal period, something remarkable happened. She was found to be with child, literally the Greek text says, out of the Holy Spirit. A production of the Holy Spirit. And so therefore, verse 19 Joseph, her husband, being a righteous man, not wanting to disgrace her, planned to send her away secretly. But when he had considered this, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary as your wife, for the child who has been conceived in her is out of the Holy Spirit. Now, it's hard for us to imagine the shock. Forget for a moment he's heard from the angel. Just go back to when Mary tells him that she's pregnant. She'd been away, you remember. She'd gone for the period of her pregnancy to her cousin's home, Elizabeth, and spent six months there. So when she returns, she's very much with child, and she has to tell the man to whom she's betrothed. And she says to him, 
an angel came, told me I was going to get pregnant. It was something God himself was going to do. I had nothing to do with this. Yeah, exactly. I heard somebody chuckle. That, I mean, apart from what we have subsequently learned, of course that's the response. I mean, Joseph knows that the child obviously isn't his. He knows his betrothed wife is pregnant, and the child isn't his. So then, as anyone would, he began to think about his options, and there were only three options. The first option was to marry her. Now, this was simply not done. In fact, even Roman law treated a husband who failed to divorce an unfaithful wife as a panderer exploiting his wife as a prostitute. The Jewish Mishnah forbade a man in this situation to marry the woman. And besides, just on a practical level, think about it. If he marries Mary, what does everyone think? This is his child. He would be forever tainting his reputation. That was his first choice, but it really wasn't a choice. His second choice was to disgrace her. That's how Matthew puts it. This refers to Joseph making a public accusation against Mary in a court of law. But such a public proceeding would, in that culture, a culture known for for the, the concept of shame, it would publicly shame him and his family. But Matthew tells us Joseph was a remarkable man because he wasn't thinking about himself and his own reputation and his own honor when he decided not to take Mary to court. Notice specifically what it says. He didn't want to disgrace her. He didn't want to make a public spectacle of her. In Moses' day, if it had been proven in court that a betrothed wife was unfaithful, as I said, she could have been stoned. She could have been put to death. But in the first century, if Joseph had taken this course, the court would have allowed him to have impounded her dowry, the asset she brought to the marriage, and perhaps have permitted Joseph to recoup the bride price if he had paid one at the beginning of the betrothal. In other words, he could have recouped all of his losses, written this off, and and kept his reputation untarnished, although it would have brought some public shame. His third choice was to send her away secretly. The Greek word translated send away is the very same word our Lord uses both in Matthew 5 and in Matthew 19 for divorce. So Joseph was considering privately divorcing Mary. And that, Matthew tells us, is exactly the course that Joseph decided to take. Notice verse 19, he planned to send her away secretly, to divorce her privately, and to move on with his life. Now, at this point, think about Mary for a moment. There was no way in the world for Mary to defend herself. What is she going to say that is going to convince Joseph of her innocence? How is she in any way going to bring him to understand what has happened to her? There's no way. And so the Lord defends her. He sends an angel in verse 20 to speak to Joseph in a dream, and this is what the angel said, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary as your wife. That phrase, to take Mary as your wife, that describes the second part of the Jewish wedding. When the man came and took the woman back to his home, 
So the angel tells Joseph to proceed with finalizing the marriage. And Joseph did exactly what he was commanded. Verse 24, Joseph awoke from his sleep and did as the angel of the Lord commanded him and took Mary as his wife. He took the next step and formally took Mary from her home into his own. But notice, according to verse 25, he kept her a virgin. Literally, the Greek text says, he did not know her. That is, he did not have sexual relations with her until she gave birth. What was the reason for that? Why was that important? Because Isaiah had said, remember, Isaiah had said that a virgin would conceive and that as a virgin, she would bear a son. She would give birth to a son. And that's exactly what Matthew records. Now, of course, you come to um, the, the most detailed account of the actual birth of Christ is recorded for us in Luke chapter 2, verses 1 to 20, the very familiar Christmas story, and I'm not going to get into that tonight because we're familiar with that. I want to move to an area of Christ's life that we aren't as familiar with. The rest of those 30 years, the infancy and youth of Jesus Christ. Let's walk through this based on the timeline I've already shared with you. Of course, at eight days came his circumcision. Again, somewhere in that 5 to 6 B.C. window, depending on exactly when he was born. Luke chapter 2, verse 21 says, When eight days had passed before his circumcision, his name was then called Jesus, the name given him by the angel before he was conceived in the womb. Usually this was a ceremony, a big ceremony, attended by family and close friends. It became the occasion at which the name was typically announced. The name that the parents had decided, often as it is today, a family name, a name with some significance to the family itself. But Joseph, you remember, as we just saw a moment ago, had been told by the angel that his son was to be named Jesus. In fact, look at Matthew chapter 1, verse 21. She will bear a son, this is the angel to to Joseph, and you shall call his name Jesus. Call him Jesus. Now, the Greek name Jesus was simply a transliterated form of the Hebrew name Joshua or Yeshua. It simply means Yahweh, God's personal name, Yahweh is salvation or Yahweh saves. What could be a more perfect name for the Redeemer? And Matthew tells us that the angel defined it for Joseph in verse 21, call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. He will rest. Call him Yahweh saves. But it doesn't say because Yahweh will save his people from their sins. Call him Yahweh saves, for this child will rescue his people from their sins. You see, already the deity of Christ screams off the page of the New Testament. At 40 days, Jesus was presented at the temple. It was about six miles' journey from Bethlehem, where Jesus had been born, to Jerusalem. Some of you have made that trek. Um, In Luke chapter 2, verses 22 to 38, this presentation at the temple is described and the people they run into there. 
the offering that was made for a, a male child, firstborn male child, was to be of a lamb or of a dove, and, excuse me, a lamb and a dove or of a pigeon. But if they couldn't afford a lamb, the law allowed for this couple to substitute two turtle doves or two pigeons, according to Leviticus 12, verse 8. And that's exactly, in this record, what they did. So apparently, Joseph and Mary, like most young couples starting out, were not wealthy. They couldn't afford a lamb as as the sacrifice. That's Tom Pennington here on The Word Unleashed with part one of his series, A Survey of the Life of Christ. Tom will have part two for you on our next program. Join us then, won't you? Well, it's our prayer that you'll be enriched by the expository teaching of God's Word here on The Word Unleashed. We'd love to hear your story and how God is enriching you in your walk with Christ through this ministry. Write to us, won't you? Our address is listeners at the wordunleashed.org. Again, that's listeners at the wordunleashed.org. Or you can call us at 1-877-577-WORD. And remember to connect with us on social at The Word Unleashed. We also invite you to visit thewordunleashed.org, where you'll find other resources, including additional series from The Word Unleashed. Again, that's thewordunleashed.org. The Word Unleashed is made possible because of the prayers and financial gifts of individuals just like you. Please consider partnering with us. You can find out how to do so by visiting thewordunleashed.org. That's thewordunleashed.org. And now for Tom Pennington and the entire team, I'm Bill Wright. Thanks for listening to The Word Unleashed, exalting God's glory, explaining God's truth. Mm